welcome to Dig, a history podcast. How do we remember our past? Or, more accurately, how do we reconstruct our past? Historical memory is selective. We choose what we will remember, what we will honor, what we will teach our children, and what we will selectively forget. The retelling of the past is never an exact replication of what quote-unquote happened. To think that it is, is a mistake, a gross form of naivete, a confusion between sentimentality and realism. Instead, as historians, we take the documents, the words, the stories, the pictures, everything that we can get our hands on that was produced during the time that we are studying, and we combine them with the context of the day, with the events, both big and small, going on in the world in which our historical subjects lived, worked, and loved. We analyze this with secondary sources, with the historiography and knowledge of that which has come before us. Then, as historians, we weave a rich, fuller picture of the life and times of our historical subjects, sometimes richer than what they were aware of even at the time. Forces stronger and even perhaps unknown to our historical subjects shaped and manipulated the choices and the decisions that they made every day. Sometimes those forces aren't even visible until many years later. That is why history is never dead. It is constantly being reevaluated, reinterpreted, and reexamined. Why? Because history is not a static monolith. It is not a dry set of facts and dates, of great white men and silent masses. Instead, history colors our every day and is also colored by our present. Let me read to you a quote by American author James Baldwin. Quote, History does not refer merely to the past. History is literally present in all that we do. It reminds me of that famous Faulkner quote, history isn't dead, it isn't even past, mm. right? So when we break that down a little bit, what Baldwin is saying and what we're saying is that history is alive and breathing and gets interpreted within our current contexts. When we're discussing history, especially about national or foundational myths that explain who we are or who we wish that we were as a culture or as a nation, these myths or origin stories that we internalize as truth or somehow become elemental to who we are, we must be aware that these historical stories were created during a particular period in time. The context, the social, the political and cultural context of the period these stories were created in colored the formation of those myths or origin stories. So today's podcast is going to be a little different than what we normally do. Instead of giving you a lot of backstory on an event or a period in history, we are instead going to talk about the creation of historical memory and how one war in particular, the Texas War of Independence, is remembered, but also how historical memory of that war is profoundly colored by the memory of the Civil War through what is known as the Lost Cause. I'm Elizabeth Garner Masaryk. And I'm Sarah Hanley Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Dig.
we're just going to pause before we get into the meat of our episodes just to say please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast so that you never have to miss an episode. It'll show up with whether you want to or not. <laughs> and leave us a review. It really helps us reach a larger audience. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is a bit more personal than maybe some of our other dig history episodes that you might be used to. Um, Sarah and I, this is Elizabeth speaking right now, we come to this story through a unique perspective in that we both found our love and passion for the history profession um, through a childhood fascination with the Civil War. Right. Yep. Um I fell in love with the Civil War when I was a little girl. My dad actually gave me his copy of this book called North and South, which I actually don't recommend. It's this sort of schlocky 1970s epic romantic novel about two families during the Civil War. And it was huge. It was like really thick. It was like this thick. Dude, I read it. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's one of my oh, introductions as oh, well. I'm sorry. It's, I saw Gone with the Wind, but I didn't see North and South. Um, and it's... It's huge. And I carried it around on the playground in a this Winnie the Pooh backpack, like a stuffed animal backpack, uh, and read it while all my peers were, like, playing dodgeball or something. Oh and so later on, um, my dad and I both read the book The Killer Angels, which is a novel about Gettysburg. And it's kind of funny because as much as I was drawn to the war and I sort of was in love with it, I never, ever thought about studying it professionally until I found myself in kind of a quandary about where my life was going. Um, I, I had thought that I was going to be a lawyer for a long time until I did an internship. And it was just soul crushing. It was like so <laughs> boring and horrible. I just, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't do it. So I, I was sort of at a loss and I just randomly did some Googling for internships and programs. And I was like, well, what am I interested in? You know, I, it's almost like wow. I had to go back to square one and yeah. then I like took stock of, well, what are the things that I like? And I was taking a civil war class at the time. And I said, well, I'm really enjoying this. I've always liked this. Maybe there's an internship at a military park or something that I could go to. And I found a um, one semester program at Gettysburg College that was just that, studying the Civil War. And that was it. That Ever since then, that was the one goal. It was, was meant to be, to be for yep, you. Exactly. Awesome. Well, and uh, I guess my story is kind of similar. I came uh, to this through a classroom indoctrination really in the lost cause mm. being raised in the south i had a weird childhood obsession with gone with the wind mm -hmm, yep. um to the you know i would just collect you know movie memorabilia and all this stuff and again it, it's like an eighth grader or like six i think i read it the first time in sixth grade like who does that what right 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 nerds were we right um and also the novel north and south that's so um, funny I grew up in the shadow of the tall tales of the Lone Star State, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and like many Southerners, I was fascinated with the Civil War and this idea of valor and chivalry, which I thought represented the Southern way of life. Right. Um, regrettably, slavery and the racial repercussions of the war, honestly, it never entered my worldview until, until much later. Wow. Yeah. That seems to be a pretty common theme among white people who grew up in the South, but in the United States in general, too. I mean, the erasure of black people, of slavery, and of the violence of redemption after the Civil War and our collective understanding of the war are, are pretty common, right? That just sort of disappears from our narrative. Mm -hmm. And we want to argue that the selective forgetting we experience in regard to the Civil War has also happened within our historical memory of a war that happened even 
earlier, the Texas War for Independence. Right. So a little backstory of why this episode is personal for me. I am a sixth generation Texan. My great, great, great grandfather, Bradley Garner, started the line that moved to Mexican Texas and wound up with me. Wow. Uh, My line of the Garner family originally lived in Spanish Louisiana, which then turned into French Louisiana, which then turned into American Louisiana (laughs) after the the Louisiana Purchase in 1804. Uh, Their oldest son, David, went to Texas in 1825 and received a land grant from Mexico to settle near the Sabine River in southeast Texas. He was my great-great-grandfather. And David's siblings and parents followed him to Texas shortly afterwards. Uh, One of his sisters married Claiborne West, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Texas Independence. And it's weird because Claiborne is still a name that's like passed down, which is interesting because he's only related through marriage, but we still... Like there, there are Cl- Claiborne's like throughout my family. This reminds me of those people who can trace their lineage back to like the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like to the founding of of your place. Right. In 1835, during the Texas War of Independence, my great-great-grandfather, Garner, mustered 19 militiamen and participated in one of the earliest scrimmages of the war. It's called the Grass Fight. And later in the Battle of San Antonio with uh, Colonel Ben Milam. The Battle of San Antonio is not the fight at the Alamo, just FYI. Otherwise, he would have died and I wouldn't be here. (laughs) Um, But this is the skirmish in which uh, the Texans took the Alamo from the Mexicans in the first place, Mm. uh, which is then what prompted Santa Ana to recapture it in 1836 proving very deadly for the overwhelmed Texas right. Texans. Um, my family went on to live in Texas and became cattle ranchers. They were slave owners and they fought in the Confederacy during the Civil War. I didn't know this yeah. about you. <laughs> this is really interesting. Yeah. I, just to interject here that, you know, growing up in New York, um, my you, you were saying that like, you didn't learn, you didn't think about the the slavery issue part of it. That was always part of it for me. It was always part of it. It was such a focus almost. We talk about, we decry history education in, in the United States so much, but I have to say, even as young as like fourth grade, we were talking about the Underground Railroad and um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, all of mm-hmm. those things we talked about very, very young. And, but I think another part of that is that I think... I might be wrong unless somebody didn't, wasn't like, unless it just didn't come up in conversation. I don't think I've ever met somebody who could trace their family back to the Confederacy. Hmm. I don't think I've ever, you know, I'm sure that I have, and it's just never been a topic of conversation, but I know lots of people whose families fought in the Union Army. Yeah. Well, that's because you're from the North. Right. right? Exactly. I just think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and and the reason I bring up this, this personal this personal family history. I mean, I'm honestly, I'm a little hinky about it. Right. Um, not because I'm ashamed of it, but just because I don't like talking about myself so much. Mm-hmm. But I'm bringing it up today to show or to, in a way, just to argue, like, you know, these are my people. Right. And I am okay with looking this history square in the face. Right. And... I don't feel like I have to go flagellate myself in front of like the monument of white guilt or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, like I just want to say like, you know, these, these are my um, ancestors mm-hmm. and looking at this history, bold faced or bald faced or how do you say it? Bald faced, bald faced, bald faced, yeah. you know, like, looking at this history straight on it, 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 it doesn't have to, um, I don't know, change your self-worth mm-hmm. yeah. or anything like that. And I think a lot of times the argument is, well, 
this is my heritage, right? And so you're you're um, sort of maligning my people, my family, right. my, my people who, um, right. you know, it, I'm invested exactly. in. Maligning it, my people. And, right. and I'm saying as as somebody from those people, mm-hmm. I don't see it that way at all. Yeah. And so I, I think probably a lot more people see it that way than maybe the media would, mm-hmm. would make us. Right. Believe. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. <laughs> so you may be wondering, what does the Texas War for Independence and the Lost Cause have to do with one another? The Texas War for Independence was in 1836 and Texas became a state in 1845. The Civil War ended in 1865 and the Lost Cause didn't become a thing until the 20th century. So we've got we're, we're covering a lot of ground here. <laughs> uh, historians talk about the Lost Cause a lot. But I sometimes get the feeling that not a lot of people actually know what we mean when we say the lost cause, what, mm-hmm. what that actually is. So the lost cause, or in its complete form, the lost cause of the Confederacy, was a sort of shared myth created after the Civil War ended and after the Confederacy was defeated that refashions the Civil War as the honorable and heroic struggle of a knightly Christian South against an immoral invading force, the North, with vastly greater resources and troop strength. This is why the Lost Cause uses the moniker the War of Northern Aggression or the War for Southern Independence, as I recently ran into on the Internet not Mm. that long ago, um, instead of the Civil War, which makes it more even, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, an even kind of matchup or the war between the states even. This mythology was actively created by writers who wrote nostalgic essays and books about beauty and honor of the Old South, by women's groups who helped to direct public events and celebrations of Confederate martyrs, and of course, by the creation of monuments to Confederate heroes. They also had to create the idea that the war had nothing to do with slavery, and instead was about states' rights and protecting the homeland from these invaders, especially protecting vulnerable women. And we want to argue that the history of Texas independence is greatly influenced by the same type of historical memory creation of the lost cause. So again, it's very personal to me. I, I am a Texan through and through. I mean, hell, I grew up, listen to that, I grew up, but <laughs> you know, I, with this, we had this giant longhorn skull really? in our living room, you know, like just, I mean, they reached from end, these horns reached from end to end of the living room and this, you know, giant Texas flag underneath it is a focal point, you know? Wow. Um, my daddy is none too happy that I went off and married a Yankee. <laughs> um uh, you know, so so it was ingrained in me from a small child. Right. Um, but be- since becoming a student of history and since seeing how the lost cause has colored the history of Texas and the South in general, and since gaining a deeper understanding of American history, I, I kind of find myself adrift or even angry sometimes. Um, angry that I was taught one thing, that elements of my land and my people were systematically forgotten. And that story... Um, that was perpetuated was only a half truth. I learned Texas history as the white Texans and maybe the occasional Tejano sympathizer were fighting for freedom from evil and debased Mexicans and black people were nowhere to be found. Right. Um, that's pretty much the same way I learned about the civil war. I mean, yeah, we, we learned about the, the underground railroad, but it was all very, mm-hmm. you know, like disjointed. Yeah. And, you know, there was no cause and effect kind of thing. Right. Um, I learned that the Southern states seceded because the evil North was trampling on their state's rights. It was all white men. There wasn't a woman or a black person in sight. 
Um, so sometimes I think I can understand why some people get really offended when historians or social justice proponents point out that monuments, history books, and collective memory do not tell the full story. Because it's hard to be told that everything you've been taught since you were a child may not be the whole truth. Absolutely. Right. Um, it can be severely disarming for some people. And, and a lot of people's reaction is to double down, to denounce that, that, that those, uh, to denounce those that try to bring a broader understanding of history. Um, because frankly, that's easier. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that's a pretty normal human reaction for, for many. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, now, to be clear, I am not giving them a pass because I believe or I, at this point, it is willful ignorance. Mm -hmm. But what I am saying is that I think I understand why they do it. Right. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think that it is understandable that people would be reticent to believe that what they've been taught and what and, and in some ways it's a, in a very personal way right taught yes. from their from older generations who told stories about family members right i mean mm -hmm. that's kind of spitting in the eye of everything that they believe about themselves and how they fit into the history of their region mm -hmm. absolutely so you know i'm not angry that the fuller history makes my ancestors both texas and confederate have motives wants or needs that make them less heroic um, no, I'm I'm angry because that history, that full history was was kept from me and mm -hmm. my classmates. So maybe I go to the opposite extreme instead of doubling down on one way. I'm 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 kind of lashing out in the other way. Um, but you know, a child of the South should not have to go to grad school in order to get a fuller, more unbiased understanding of their own history. Right. Um, now, honestly, I admit it's been a while since I was in elementary school, so some things may have changed as far as the curriculum goes, but as a whole, it really hasn't. <laughs> right. And, and Texas is the largest purchaser of school textbooks in the country. So if they don't like what's in the book, whether it's history or science, then that book does not get published. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't get bought. It doesn't get used without, throughout the rest of the country. And there are constantly new battles emerging over what is going to go into particularly into Texas, Texas's school books. Absolutely. Um, because those books are then disseminated kind of throughout. Like right. if, if a school book is bought by the Texas Department of Education, then it's mass produced and then usually other right. states will pick it up. Right. Right. Uh, so to get back to this idea of the lost cause, the creation of an intellectual and literary understanding that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery um, and instead was about states' rights and protecting the homeland from invaders. So to come to that conclusion, one must completely ignore the actual writings and speeches of Confederate leaders. Exactly. These documents make it clear that slavery was central to the motivation for secession and war by Confederate leaders and their supporters. When Southern whites spoke about the Southern way of life, they referred to a society founded on white supremacy that was built on the institution of black chattel slavery. I mean, just read any of the Confederate state secession statements called the Declaration of Causes to see this in black and white. For example, here is Texas's Declaration of Causes. Quote, Texas abandoned her separate national existence and consented to become one of the Confederated Union to promote her welfare, ensure domestic tranquility, and secure more substantially the blessings of peace and liberty to her people. She was received into the Confederacy with her own constitution. 
under the guarantee of the federal constitution and the compact of annexation that she should enjoy these blessings. She was received as a commonwealth holding, maintaining, and protecting the institution known as Negro slavery, the servitude of the African to the white race within her limits, a relation that had existed from the first settlement of her wilderness by the white race and which her people intended should exist in all future time. Her institutions and geographical position established the strongest ties between her and other slaveholding states of the Confederacy. Those ties have been strengthened by association, but what has been the course of the government of the United States and of the people and authorities of the non-slaveholding states since our connection with them? The controlling majority of the federal government, under various pretenses and disguises, has so administered the same as to exclude the citizens of the southern states, unless under odious and unconstitutional restrictions, from all the immense territory owned in common by all the states on the Pacific Ocean, for the avowed purpose of acquiring sufficient power in the common government to use it as a means of destroying the institutions of Texas and her sister slave-holding states, end quote. Hot damn. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in case that wasn't uh, convincing enough, here is Mississippi's. In the momentous step which our state has taken of dissolving its connection with the government of which we were so long formed a part, it is but just that we should declare the prominent reasons which have induced our course. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. I almost want to read that again. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Uh, the greatest material interest of the world. Um, I mean, it doesn't get more black and white than that, right? Nope. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions. And by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has been long aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left to us but submission to the mandates of abolition or a dissolution of the union whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. I mean, it just doesn't get more clear. No, but in case you haven't gotten it yet. Right. Here's, here's one more. Um, here is the Cornerstone speech. Ah, yes. Delivered by Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederate States. Quote, the new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitated and the new constitution being of the Confederate States. Right. right. He's, that's what he's talking about. The new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery, as it exists amongst us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Jefferson, in his forecast, had anticipated this as the rock upon which the old union Union would split. He was right. What was conjecture with him is now a realized fact. But whether he fully comprehended the great truth upon which that rock stood and stands may be doubted. The prevailing ideas entertained by him and most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. It was an evil they knew not well how to deal with, but the general opinion of the men of the day was that, somehow or other, in the order of providence, the institution would be evanescent and pass away. 
This idea, though not incorporated in the Constitution, was the prevailing idea at the time. The, con the Constitution, it is true, secured every essential guarantee to the institution, i.e. to slavery, while it should last, and hence no argument can be justly urged against the constitutional guarantees thus secured, because of the common sentiment of the day. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the as assumption of the equality of the races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation, and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Just let that sink in a little bit. Yeah. And by the way... I never saw that speech until I moved up north, and I was in grad school actually TAing for an undergraduate course. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, it, it's when it, I showed my students that yeah. that 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 speech now, like even students who are raised in the north, like yeah. their jaws drop. Yeah, I don't think that I encountered it in in high school or anything. I don't actually even think that I encountered it while I was in college. Um, and I took Civil War classes. I studied the Civil War. Um, a lot. And I actually don't think that I read it until I was also in grad school. And I, I have the same experience of, I assign the declaration of causes and I assign the cornerstone speech to my students. And they're every semester I have students who are just, you know, awed, you yeah, know, by yeah, this stuff. Astounded. <clears throat> So supporters of the lost cause often stress the idea that secession was a reaction to the northern aggression against their way of life, that the South was more Christian and more moral than the North, that the Confederate leadership um, were prime examples of chivalry and honor, and that slavery was ultimately a benevolent institution that helped African-Americans. In explaining the Confederate loss, it wasn't because the South as a region was vastly behind in industrializing because they had relied so much on cotton production and on, on slavery or due to a lack of civilian support, but instead only because of the quantitative advantage of the Union Army. They had more men, they had more supplies, they had more money, they had better railroads, whatever it is, yeah. right? That's why the mm -hmm. Confederacy lost. Um the Lost Cause also demonizes Reconstruction. Reconstruction was just a continuation of that invasion by the, the, the Yankees with carpetbaggers coming in, stripping Southerners of their manhood by subjugating them to federal power. And of course, giving the formerly enslaved new rights and protecting those rights with the presence of the U.S. military. I mean, something that I think is sometimes lost when we teach Reconstruction is that it is a military occupation right it's one of the first military occupations in american history so that was demoralizing and emasculating on top of the bitterness of defeat right right historian david blight argues that there were two competing visions of how the civil war should be remembered during the 20th century 
Um, Some embraced an emancipationist vision in which the nation would be reborn in a more egalitarian republic that upheld the tenets of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The second was a reconciliationist vision in which harmony and the mending together of the North and the South were more important than the actual causes of the war and the unfinished business of reconstruction and and racial equality. Unfortunately, by the end of the 1800s, the subordination of black people in both the North and the South were so ingrained into white people's understanding of social order that the forces of reconciliation completely overwhelmed emancipationist vision. So put another way by another historian, Eric Foner, uh, quote, the Confederacy lost the war on the battlefield, but won the war over memory. Really pulling out the big guns on the historians there. <laughs> the one-two punch of Blight and Foner. Whew. So I just want to point out here that that um, all the time I have students or people on, you know, you get into a conversation on Facebook about history, whatever, and people always pull out this history is written by the victors quote, right? But this is a really, really important example where that is not true at all, right? The losers yeah. of the Civil War win the battle for civil war memory they are the ones that are driving the narrative not the victors right, here right um and that's that's important it's that we can't just rely on these kind of pat statements to help us to understand our history right it doesn't always fit mm-hmm. so bringing this back around to texas specifically this type of reconciliation remembering colors the way that many people remember the Texas War for Independence. In most retellings of this war, slavery is just a small, even insignificant aspect of the story. Nobody wanted it. It was brought begrudgingly, etc., etc., etc. Right. One of the reasons that this selective memory is taught to our school children and regurgitated in popular memory is because of how that memory was created. And in order to understand that, we need to look to the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, or DRT, and the Daughters of the Confederacy, or the UDC, United Daughters of the Confederacy. Right. Both of these organizations formed at about the same time. The Daughters of the Republic of Texas was founded in 1891, and the UDC in the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1894. The Daughters of the Confederacy was mostly concerned with a desire to educate the young in proper histories of the South. Historian Elizabeth Hayes Turner writes, Mary Hunt Affleck, the chairman of the textbook committee for the Texas division of the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, exhorted her audience to concern itself with the selection of books for schools and town libraries. Southern schools should use such books bearing on literature that give proper emphasis to Southern productions. On civics, that discusses the deeper constitutional questions, as did the antebellum statesmen and jurists. On history, that recognizes the Great War of the 60s as a civil war in which both sides were equally patriotic and both honest defenders of unsolved national questions and in which neither was in rebellion. Histories that did not make the grade were condemned. The UDC was encouraged to use its influence as a body to have books teaching Southern authors and their words in public schools. 
And honestly, this is not a hypothetical. Like, right. I've seen this in action. Um, I was doing some research uh, on the Texas School of the Blind, and I can't remember the date off the top of my head. It would have been between 1915 and 1920. And I, I found a letter from one of the school officials. Uh, he's writing to a book distributor about a set of uh, history books that he had received in Braille. And he was complaining that he couldn't use them. He needed to return them because they were too biased towards the North. Wow. They didn't teach, you know, quote, unquote, proper southern history hmm. and he was lamenting that he couldn't get braille books with proper southern history because mostly all of the books in braille were produced um in the north that's right so that he was shipping all these history books back fascinating yeah yeah that is really fascinating and i know i've come across um in, in like going to flea markets and antiquing and stuff i've find all of these um old series of of history books you know that's like one each little book is like a different chapter in mm -hmm. in history that are written around the same time turn of the century and um i have one that's this kind of time period and it's you know i think it's like specifically about lee it's called march i actually now that i think of it i have one that's by a confederate veteran that's called marching with lee and it's mm -hmm. just like lee as this like you know um christian hero right yeah. it's just it's really fascinating how you can still find find this stuff oh, floating absolutely. around out there anyway 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 yeah so okay in researching the founding of the daughters of the republic of texas turner recounted how betty bollinger one of the founders of the drt argued that the future of texas belonged to the men the holy past would be taken care of by the women and went on to say, let us love to study Texas history and teach it to her children until they have learned that, Go is it Goliad? Mm -hmm. Okay. That Goliad is as glorious as Marathon and San Jacinto, as sacred as Bunker Hill. Let us seek out the graves of our heroes and having found them, let us care for them with grateful reverence. Be ours the duty to visit it and mark the spots where Texas was won for us. Gonzalez, the Alamo, Goliad, San Jacinto, milestones along the bloodstained path to freedom. Whoa, that's some lost cause language there. Exactly. That is fascinating. The bloodstained path yeah. to freedom. Membership in the Daughters of the Republic of Texas was much more limited just because one had to be a direct descendant of an original settler of Texas or have fought uh, or be a descendant of somebody who had fought in the war for independence. Mm -hmm. And so there just weren't as many people or as many women who could claim those two things as could claim membership into the Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. I actually can claim both. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> you could be in the but, United Daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, well, you also, um, at least for the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, they also have to, like, approve of you. Like, yes. basically, you have to yeah. be morally upstanding. Yeah, so yeah. I, I don't think that they would <laughs> think that I would be good enough for that. But these women ran in the same circles, and a few obviously could belong to both groups. Um, and these women, they were part of the middle class elite. They were the wives of prominent men in town. They had the money and the leisure time to volunteer for these types of organizations. They were also members of the YWCA, local church organizations, and other uh, voluntary organizations. Um, both groups so both the DRT and the UDC had uh, similar founding beliefs. Um, they both uh, 
these, these beliefs were to take care of the graves of fallen heroes from the war, mm -hmm. to erect commemorative, uh, commemorative monuments, and to teach future generations their version of history, which offered their ancestors up as heroic figures fighting on the side of liberty and justice. Slavery was not part of that picture. Uh, can I tell you a quick question or tell you a quick story here? You can tell me a quick question. Yes, I can, can tell, tell you a quick question. question. Um, so I thought of this because very similar to your description of how the DRT and the UDC work in terms of the membership, uh -huh. the DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, is like exactly the same. You have to be able to trace your line. Well, so we were cleaning out my grandfather's house after he passed away and we found all this paperwork that my great aunt had done to get into the DAR because yeah. it turns out that one of our French ancestors had come from France with like Lafayette hmm. to fight in the American revolution. She was trying to get into the DAR. Uh -huh. And I thought, Oh, I can be in the DAR. Like, not that I actually want to, right, right. but I thought, cause it's such a fancy thing that I thought like, Oh, awesome. Right. I can go to their and annual then, balls. Right. Right. <laughs> and then I realized, well, no, actually I can't because my great aunt, that side of the family was not blood relatives. My, mm. my, my grandmother married, my grandfather after she had her children uh, by another man who had passed away. Yeah. Then we realized that my grandmother and my grandfather were cousins. <laughs> so I was like, oh, actually, I, I can. can. <laughs> Yay. Isn't that great? Anyway, I don't oh think maybe God. that's the DAR wouldn't want me because of that. Okay. Yeah, see, there you go. Kissing cousins. <laughs> well, and I mean, just as far as the DR, like a woman that I'm studying now for, for, for my research, mm -hmm. um, Kate Waller Barrett, who was a big figure in um, aid for single mothers mm -hmm. at the turn of the century. She was, I think she was even president of the DAR for a while. And yeah. so her, her papers are just filled with, and it is, it's the same type of, of language. You yes. Know? It's a very um, time period specific. Right. Um, um, thing, the literary intellectual thing that we're yeah. dealing with at this moment. You see echoes of that, um, of that same, like you said, the same language about like taking care of the graves and, and making mm -hmm. sure that people are memorialized and all that stuff, even in the DAR, although two very different ends, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, I think, evolution of Victorian sentimentality. Yes. Right. That, that moves us into the 20th century. Yes. Yeah. The Daughters of the Republic of Texas raised the funds to rescue and restore the Alamo from my favorite word of all time, decrepitude. <laughs> it is the best word. Um, they were the sole operators of the site, which they named the Shrine, if that gives you any idea of how they felt about it, from 1905 until 2015, when Texas took control of it and put it under the direction of the Texas General Land Office. That's when they discovered that Pee Wee Herman's bike was in there. <laughs> There is no basement in the Alamo, by the way. We don't have basements in Texas. Oh, my God. Uh, all right. Um, disputes over the DRT's ability to financially support the upkeep of the Alamo finally caused the split. But for many years previous to this, bills were routinely filed in the legislature to remove the DRT as a custodian on the grounds that its, rep that its interpretation of the Alamo's history was racist. The story of the Alamo, both in Texas history books and at the Alamo itself, at least prior to 2015, was one that pitted Anglo-Texans against Mexicans. That's it. Mexicans were bad. 
Texans were good and they were fighting this pure fight for freedom. Right. One San Antonio native and advocate for a more inclusive and historically accurate interpretation of the Alamo and of the Texas war in general is quoted as saying that like most people, she believed the this John Wayne version of the Alamo story, uh, you know, the, the movie, mm-hmm. uh, the Alamo with John Wayne. Um, you know, she believed the story for most of her life. Uh, she, quote, it wasn't until I was in college that I learned that Su- Su- uh, Susanna Dickinson wasn't the only woman who survived the battle. Eleven Tejano women and eight children also survived. Their history has been erased. Mm, that's really interesting. And, and this historical misinterpretation is all due to efforts in the 20th century by groups like the DRT and the UDC to sentimentally reinterpret the past and guarantee that a heroic, Anglo-centric interpretation of history is disseminated through elementary schools and public monuments. The Republic of Texas, meaning the years between independence in 1836 and statehood in 1845, is celebrated in Texas schools. We went on field trips to the building that housed the French legation in Austin and marveled that a country that loomed so large in our childhood minds would have their own embassy in the Republic of Texas. We learned why the Texas flag uh, can be flown at the same level as the American flag because Texas was its own country. Really? Yeah. Hawaii can do the same thing, actually. But so. I it doesn't did not have to be below know it. that. Yeah. Oh, that's that's very interesting. <laughs> uh, so the the period of the Republic is celebrated and admired, and sometimes seen as a, a good old days that Texas could secede back to if they really wanted. Um, I mean, even liberals joke in Texas about seceding. That's just what we do. Um, and honestly, you will never meet a bunch of people more proud of their state or involved in a more like exceptionalist outlook of their state mm-hmm. than Texas. I mean, maybe New Yorkers come close. Mm-hmm. I am married to like a, you know, New Yorker from like New York City. So he's oh, okay. obviously very into it. Yeah. Um, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find that kind of widespread ex- exceptionalism in other states. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's my exceptionalism. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about Vermont, though? We were also our own nation for a short period of time. Oh, were you? So can, can, you pl- can you fly your flag at the same level? I assume so. I don't know. I've never noticed. There's I, nothing that we talk about. I it just, I feel like I know a few people from Vermont who are, like, very, like, yeah. into Vermont. But I, I agree with you that I think New Yorkers yeah. have a certain sort of, you know, if if Texas is, like, got that kind of, like, big sort of persona. I think mm-hmm. New Yorkers also sort yeah. of have that, like, big state I, persona. I, I feel like they, they go pretty well head to head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's an a, interesting combination. Yeah. Vermonters don't have that. They're sort of like, aw shucks, let's drink some seltzer and drink maple syrup and eat what are cheese. What you talking about? It's craft beer, <laughs> cheese. No seltzer? No seltzer. Who polar is- seltzer. Isn't polar seltzer made in Vermont? No. I have no earthly idea. Or Massachusetts. Something not Vermont. It's New Englandy. We like, digress. We don't need to talk about how much better we are than everyone else. Because you just know it. You do make excellent cheese. So, so in summation, though, this this time period of the Republic right. of Texas it's is really is held up mm-hmm. as as like, see, we were our own country, right? Yes, absolutely. But 
In reality, though, the years of the Republic of Texas were sort of confusing and dangerous. Mexico still claimed most of Texas as its own. In the power vacuum that Texas independence created, Comanches, Creek, and other indigenous groups vied for control of land and resources that were once unavailable to them. And the United States spurned Texas's request for statehood, staving off the questions over slavery that rocked the late 1830s and 1840s that Texas annexation brought with it. So let's dig a little bit deeper. He <laughs> get it, dig, dig, dig. Into <laughs> Texas. Put the soundtrack or the, the little the snippet in there. We right should. There? Yes. The digging noise. Yes. Um, into Texas history and its erasure in the myths of Texas independence. Slavery in Texas is usually not seriously considered when talking about the chattel slave system of the South. What generally comes to mind are the vast slave plantations of the Deep South, like Mississippi or Georgia. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, some people, historians included, discount slavery in Texas because... You know, they say it only lasted for 20 years, uh, meaning that chattel slavery in Texas only lasted from 1845, when Texas became a state, to 1865, um, June 19th, 1865, to be exact, when the Emancipation Proclamation was read in the state of Texas, then part of the Confederate states, and the formal institution of slavery ended. Um, And I just want to sidetrack just a tiny bit here. Just so you know this history, um, the reading of the Emancipation Proclamation on June 19th, 1865 in Texas was actually two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was signed, which was January 1st, 1863. Before General Lee's surrender in 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation had little impact on Texas because there was a minimal number of Union troops there that were able to enforce that executive order. It was only after surrender and the arrival of General Granger that Union forces were able to overcome resistance in Texas. One of General Granger's first orders of business was to read to the people of Texas General Order Number 3, which began, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and free laborer. And and just one last thing about this is that that becomes a celebration, almost symbolic of the emancipation process that had been happening throughout the war. Um, and it's celebrated today in a lot of American cities as Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. So I know Buffalo has a Juneteenth celebration. I'm certain that many, many other communities do as well. Well, I mean, it's really big in Texas, mm-hmm. obviously. But yeah. Uh, but slavery in Texas... Uh, contrary to some of those popular beliefs, it did not only last for 20 years, but operated in some capacity or another since European contact in the 16th century, and most likely before that among indigenous peoples living in the region prior to contact. However, the type of slavery that we will be discussing today is chattel slavery. This type of slavery is very different than older forms of slavery. Chattel slavery is a type of slavery in which people are actual property who could be bought, sold, traded, or inherited, much like livestock or inanimate objects. A person was born into slavery and their offspring would become slaves too. This was the type of slavery practiced in the southern United States and the one that we will be concentrating on today. 
slavery in Texas is unique because it involves Spain, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, and the United States. During the Spanish colonial period, roughly 1690 to 1821, Spain settled the region by establishing presidios, or fortified bases, to maintain control of an area. And they established missions to convert the indigenous populations to Christianity. So, story. Um, <laughs> I began my undergrad career actually as an archaeology major, because I thought I was going to like be Indiana Jones or yeah. something. Um, and I was able to do a dig at a Presidio site in Mission, Texas, um, with the Texas Archaeology uh, Research Laboratory. Um, it's like super far south on the Texas border with Mexico. It's probably almost as south as you can get. Um, it was super cool. Like, I found some small arrowheads, um, pottery shards. But that trip also totally made me realize that I did not want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> it was like 120 degrees and oh I was God. camping in a tent. Um, and I was, I don't know, I was in, I'm 18 years old. No, wait, how, what do you, how old are you? I think it was like a freshman or a sophomore. So it would have been, yeah, yeah, I was like 18, 18 or okay. 19. Yeah. So I was like 18, 19 years old. Um, <laughs> and I remember there was like a lady there. Um, she was probably only in her thirties, but like, she was like a grown up to me, you right, know? Right. Um, and she was like the next morning, like, how'd you sleep? And I told her I didn't cause you know, it was freaking hot and I was alone and in the middle of nowhere. She was like, Oh, I just had a Tylenol PM and a glass of wine. And I slept like a baby. <laughs> I was like, that was like the first time I knew that was like a thing. And I was like, you mean you can add those? And I do not suggest you do. I think you're not even supposed to drink with Tylenol because it like messes up your liver. (laughs) Like I specifically like remember that forever will be like tied to my brain with uh, Presidios. Essentially though, those were like Spanish missions to protect the frontier. Like forts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fortifications. Yeah. 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 But also, um, you know, usually housed a church. Right. right? That kind of thing. All right. Anyway, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So slavery was allowed in New Spain, meaning the land that includes present day Central America, north of Panama, uh, Mexico, the U.S. Southwest and parts of the Philippines and Caribbean islands that were controlled by colonial Spain. In 1813, the Viceroyalty of New Spain held about 6.1 million people. Its capital was Mexico City, the city formerly known as Tenochtitlan before Spanish conquest. The region that would become Texas was sparsely populated. Chattel slavery, however, did not operate in Texas until white American settlers began to migrate into the region during the 19th century. The Mexican national period that lasted from 1821 until Texas independence in 1836 represents the greatest shift in the early history of slavery in Texas. Mexico, like other South American colonies during the 19th century, fought its own war of independence against Spain and won. Um, Mexico attempted to develop the region of northern Mexico that we now know as Central and South Texas by offering land grants to Americans in exchange for bringing settlers to bolster the population in the area. In 1821, the same year of Mexican independence, Mexico granted a Connecticut farmer named Moses Austin and later his son, Stephen F. Austin, permission to colonize the Texas region of Mexico with American farmers. The Austins received a large land grant and then resold smaller tracts of land to American settlers. Settlers had to be of good moral character, become Mexican citizens, and practice Catholicism. Hmm. Land incentives and many other conditions, like soil exhaustion, encouraged settlement and fueled slaveholders from parts of the Deep South to move to Texas. 
most of the people that Austin recruited came from southern states and brought their slave laborers with them. Most white Americans willing to immigrate to Texas did so because of the opportunity to get cheap land and to begin making money by producing cotton. And unfortunately, the only way to grow cotton profitably required slaves. Stephen F. Austin made this clear in 1824. Quote, the principal product that will elevate us from poverty is cotton, he wrote, and we cannot do this without the help of slaves. This isn't to say that cotton can't be grown without slaves. That's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> we are just saying that during that time, people did not believe they could grow cotton profitably without slaves. And they did have a point. I mean, large plantations in the southeastern United States relied on slave labor and competing against those cotton producers with wage labor would have been futile. And I, I try to drive this home when I teach this to my students that, you know, they didn't have tractors. Right. They didn't have... Um, the the farming equipment that we have today that make having these huge uh, farms possible. Right. And so to grow cotton, you had to have labor. And right. you weren't going to be paying hundreds of, you know, poor white guys to be tilling your fields if slaves were available. And not to mention, like, picking cotton is very arduous right. work. I mean, you're yeah. in the sun. It's hot. Right. You're bent the, over. The cotton bowls are sharp. They mm-hmm. cut your hands up. Like, it's not a pleasant experience. I had a teacher who put broken toothpicks into cotton balls mm. and made us reach into a, a sack and pull them out and to like get the impression of how painful that yeah. would be after a while. My grandmother actually grew up on a, a tenement, a tenant farm mm-hmm. and picked cotton as, a, as yeah. a kid. And let's see, I guess it would have been in the late tens, early twenties, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and always talked about, you know, just how horrible, like her hands were cut up and everything yeah. like that. So this immigration into Texas was part of a larger phenomenon historians call the rise of the Cotton Kingdom or Mississippi Fever. What are some of the other ones? Like, it's like cotton gold or what is it? Oh, I, I usually I call it King, like, King Cotton. King Cotton, yeah. yeah. Um, essentially, get fertile land for as cheap as possible, usually land newly acquired from Native Americans, buy as many slaves as possible, and grow cotton for profit. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Stephen F. Austin negotiated a policy with officials in Mexico in regards to slavery. Uh, for each slave that an immigrant brought with them, they would be allowed to purchase an additional 50 acres of land. This later increased to 80 acres of land. Because Austin knew that the only way he could attract settlers would be if they could also bring their slaves with them. And think about, I always think about the headright system when mm-hmm. um, indentured or when People were settling in Virginia uh, right. for each indentured servant they brought over. They were eligible for an extra 50 acres of right. land, right? So same kind of same kind of idea. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, however, free blacks in Texas were granted full Mexican citizenship and property rights. So many free blacks and escaped slaves went to Texas where they received some semblance of equality or even, you know, kept traveling further south, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, historian Andrew Torgett begins his monograph, uh, The Seeds of Empire, or just Seeds of Empire, there's no the, um, with this super interesting convergence of peoples, and he really complicates a popular narrative of Texas history. Um, so the story that's ris- written in most histories about Texas's first American settlers begins like this. 
on Moses Austin's first trip to Texas, where he asked for and received permission to bring settlers to Texas, he crossed paths with a planner from Louisiana whose name was James Kirkham. Um, this part of Austin's journey is retold in histories about the beginnings of Texas because <laughs> Kirkham stole Austin's horses and provisions in the middle of the night. Hmm. Um, Austin was traveling with his son's slave named Richmond. And so Richmond and Austin had to travel by foot in January, which, by the way, in Texas is just nasty because it's wet and it's cold. It freezes at night. Obviously, there's no snow, mm -hmm. but it's just really wet and mushy and cold. Um, and Austin ended up getting pneumonia. So although he made it home, he never fully recovered and died actually a few few weeks later. So that's why his son, Stephen F. Austin, took over the settlement of Texas and later became one of the major players in Texas independence. Right. So that's the reason that that story is kind of told over and over because, you know, that's where he got right. sick and, and this, that and the other. But OK, so what Torgan does, what's what's missing from this story, and, and I'd never known this until I read Torgan's book, was that Kirkham, James Kirkham, the guy who stole Austin's horses, mm -hmm. he was in Texas because he was chasing three of his slaves named Marion, Richard, and TB, who had escaped oh. and run to New, New Spain for their freedom. Um, and, and I was just looking through the footnotes, and these are uh, Mexican sources. So that could be one reason. Oh, that's really interesting. Why these are not, um, you know, written about in, in a lot of Texas history books is because they're not going to Mexico and looking at the Mexican archives. Some right. are, some aren't. Anyway, so... That's one reason. All right, right. So so Kirkham is there and he happens upon Austin because he's chasing these three escaped slaves right. that are going into Texas and, and kind of carrying out this thing that, you know, hundreds, of maybe thousands of, of Southern slaves had done. Right, right. right. Yeah, right. So, so this story is just this kind of one little microcosm right there. Um, the convergence, right, of these uh, these people that encapsulates or really sets the stage for a war, the Texas War of Independence. Um, and, and just FYI, the, the three uh, runaway slaves, Marion, Richard, and TB, they actually did end up living out their lives in Mexico or huh. as Mexican citizens. So that's good. Um, but the story of the founder of what we now know as Texas began uh, on this journey with two slaveholders, right? So Austin and Kirkham mm -hmm. and four slaves. Um, that there's just, there's so much to unpack there. And the fact that, that the slaves are always pretty much written out of the story. Um, the fact that Kirkham is, is chasing after his, you know, chattel, his slaves, mm -hmm. um, who are doing something that hundreds of slaves in the lower states did. They were running to Spanish territory for freedom. Um, so that one little microcosm right there encapsulates or, or sets the stage for a war, the, the Texas War of Independence, that will happen 14 years later for, quote unquote, freedom mm -hmm. and independence. Right. Right. And, and it complicates the idea that that the Austins went into an empty territory. Right? Absolutely. Right. There, there were already escaped slaves, if, if not living there, go, passing through there on their way to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really complicated stuff. Uh, as more and more Americans emigrated to Texas and became the majorities in some areas, the treatment of blacks in those areas changed drastically. Plus, Mexico was very inconsistent in the laws that it enacted regarding slavery. In 1823, Mexico forbade the sale or purchase of slaves and required that the children of slaves be freed when they reached the age of 14. 
But this law wasn't strictly enforced. An 1825 census of Austin's colony revealed that out of 443 black people living in the colony, only a small fraction of them were free. The rest were enslaved by the 1,347 white Austin colonists. In 1824, Stephen F. Austin devised a set of regulations for his colony that set harsh rules for slaves who attempted to escape and punished free people who helped runaway slaves. These rules, Articles 10 through 14 of Austin's Criminal Regulations, established what were essentially Texas's first slave codes. In 1827, Mexico outlawed the introduction of additional slaves and granted freedom at birth to all children born to a slave. Within a year, however, the state congress of Coahuila and Texas, so those were kind of two states that were like uh, Mm -hmm. joined together, right? Um, They passed a law that allowed slave owners to bring in indentured servants to the region. So slave owners simply had their slaves sign contracts of long-term indenture to their masters. Those rat bastards. (laughs) Yes. And here's an example of how that worked. Americans emigrating to Texas would go to someone in America, in this example, uh, a a notary public named... William Lewis in New Orleans. Lewis would write and notarize a contract that theoretically freed the slave and subsequently indenturing them to their master as a servant for 60 to 90 years. A man named John Miller emigrated from Alabama in 1831. The indenture agreement that he had with his slaves, uh, George, Charlotte, and Charlotte's seven children, Mary, Sambo, Peter, Sally, Anna, Fanny, and David, uh, were to serve Miller for 90 years. Yeah. So that's a heck of an indenture. Yeah. So that's lifetime, right? Mexico fully abolished slavery in 1829, as well as additional immigration to Texas from the United States. Um, But Mexico made an exception for the Austin colony, and more white Americans came into the state accompanied by their slave laborers. So essentially, from 1821 to 1836, the Mexican government threatened to restrict or end slavery, but always allowed some sort of out or loophole for Texas settlers. Um, Even though Austin was a slaveholder, his feelings about it seemed to be mixed. Uh, He didn't fully support slavery. At least he wasn't like a Bible thumper about it. Um, Now, this wasn't because he was an abolitionist in any way. He was not. He owned slaves. You know, he owned slaves. But um, he was apathetic regarding slavery because he didn't want black people to populate his beloved Texas. Hmm. Um, And in all seriousness, many slaveholders, you know, felt similar mixed feelings about slavery. I mean, let's take, for example, Thomas Jefferson, uh, who wrote in 1820 in regards to slavery, quote, but as it is, we have the wolf by the ear, meaning slavery, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale and self-preservation in the other. Right. I mean, a lot of people who are perfectly happy to enslave people, to hold them in bondage, also opined about how, like, G. Willikers sort of wish that this wasn't the situation we were in, but what are we going to do, right? Uh, So all of these men who were making money and survived on the institution of slavery were also a little meh about it and moralized about it, but they never did anything to stop it, right? They they sort of had mixed feelings about it. 
but they didn't have enough strength to stop using it within their own lives. For example, Stephen Austin wrote in 1833 that the idea of seeing such a country as this, this country meaning Texas, overrun by a slave population almost makes me weep. It is vain to tell a North American that the white population will be destroyed some 50 or 80 years hence by the Negroes and that his daughters will be violated and butchered by them. And just for you uh, listeners who may not be aware, um, he's using very coded language, right? Violated in this quote, he's, he means rape. So he's saying, hey, white people, these black guys are going to rape your daughters. And this is a fundamental trope of white supremacy that's been used for hundreds of years. It's used today. Yeah. Uh, Austin went on to write to say anything to them, white Americans or North Americans, as to the justice of slavery or its demoralizing effects on society is only to draw down ridicule upon the person who attempts it. He explained that when he began the colony, he had to get the Mexican government to tolerate slavery because, Austin argued, it was the only way he could get immigrants to come. He had to go to Mississippi and Louisiana for his first recruits. And so he had to have slavery be allowed if he expected to get Americans to come and settle in Texan Mexico. But Austin's views were fluid, and the economic and social pressures that slavery exerted weighed on his mind. Um, he went on later to state that, quote, I have been adverse to the principle of slavery in Texas. I have now and for the last six months changed my views on that matter. Texas must be a slave country. Circumstances and unavoidable necessity compels it. It is the wish of the people there, and it is my duty to do all I can prudently in favor of it. I will do so. So although the Mexican government continually made exceptions for Texas in regards to slavery, many slaveholders in Texas worried that Mexico might at some time attempt to actually uphold the laws of the land and abolish slavery for good in that region. American immigrants in Texas had a lot of money invested in cotton production and thus slavery, and they did not want to see those investments put at stake. Slave numbers in Texas in 1836 were actually fairly low, most likely due to Mexico's ambiguous attitude towards slavery. For example, in 1835, there were 5,000 enslaved people among a total population of 38,000. But the fear that Mexico would crack down on slavery in Texas became an increasingly alarming concern to slaveholding Texans. Right before the fall of the Alamo in March of 1836, the Texas government assembled in a city called Washington on the Brazos and were writing the Texas Constitution. In Section 9 of the General Provisions of the Constitution of the Republic of Texas, it uh, states how the new republic will resolve their greatest problem under Mexican rule. Quote, all persons of color who were slaves for life previous to their immigration to Texas and who are now held in bondage shall remain in the state of servitude. Congress, the Texas Congress, shall pass no laws to prohibit immigrants from bringing their slaves into the Republic with them and holding them by the same tenure by which such slaves were held in the United States. Nor shall Congress have power to emancipate slaves, nor shall any slaveholder be allowed to emancipate his or her slave without the consent of Congress, unless he or she shall send his or her slave or slaves without 
the limits of the Republic. So this is before the Alamo. Like, the War of Texas Independence is going on, and they are mm-hmm. writing the Constitution during this time, specifically right. saying, we are a slave state. You cannot, um, you know, emancipate your slaves without written consent, or you've got to send them out of the state. Right. Which was really common. I mean, that was a, a statute that most slaveholding states had, that if you manumitted your slaves, you had to, they had to leave the, mm-hmm. the state. Right. Um, the argument that slavery was not a large part of Texas independence, but instead a constant, dull, organic ache, was postulated by the Texas historian Eugene C. Barker in 1911. From, quote, from, bleh, from, 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 <laughs> from public opinion in Texas preceding the revolution by Eugene Barker. In 1911, Eugene Barker gave a presentation to the American Historical Association um, and the American Historical Association is the major professional organization of American historians. Right. All four of us are members of it. Um, almost all historians in the United States are members of it, unless yeah. they can't afford their their membership dues. And then Which they and then they buy their membership three minutes before the meeting so they can go. <laughs> um, but anyway, Guilty. so he he gives this talk in 1911 <clears throat> uh, called "Public Opinion in Texas Preceding the Revolution," and in it he says this. Earnest patriots like Benjamin Lundy, William Ellery Channing, and John Quincy Adams saw in the Texas Revolution a disgraceful affair promoted by sordid slaveholders and land speculators. Even to the critical ear of the modern historian, of course this is modern in 1911, their arguments sound plausible, and it is not strange that in a period distinguished by sectionalism they were accepted by partisans at full value. The fundamental defect of these arguments lay in the fact that their authors knew too little of contemporary opinion in Texas. The truth is, so far as one may judge from the absence of discussion on the subject in Texas, that slavery played no part in precipitating the revolution. While it is certain that land speculation, of which there was unquestionably a great deal, tended rather to retard than to hasten the outbreak. So let's break that down a little bit. Uh, Barker is explicitly saying that the Texas fight had nothing to do with slavery and that people who were saying at the time, meaning in the 1830s, that it uh, that it did, that those people had no idea what Texans were really talking about. Right. right? Um, So first off, number one, this is written in 1911. Mm -hmm. This is big time lost cause. Yeah. Okay. Birth of a Nation. It's a movie that celebrated the Ku Klux Klan of the Reconstruction era and sparked the KKK's renewal in the 20th century. Right. That movie, Birth of a Nation, you know, came out the following year in 1912. Um, blue and gray reconciliation gatherings uh, were happening all over all over the place at major Civil War battlefields. The Daughters of the Confederacy were erecting monuments all over the place, as were the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. The Lost Cause of the Civil War was being taught to school children and mm-hmm. written into history books by historians like Barker. So I'm going to interrupt you just for one second to say an, a, one reason why that time, why 1912, 1911, 1915 is such a critical time for the lost cause is that Civil War veterans are starting to die. Yeah. And so there is a major panic by um, the Daughters of the Confederacy and other groups that when these men die, the memory of the Civil War will die with them. And right. so we have to work double time to make sure that we're indoctrinating. They wouldn't use the term indoctrinating, no. but I would. Um, that we are indoctrinating the children so that we can preserve this history, even as, 
you know, our fathers and our uncles and brothers and husbands and whoever are starting to pass away, it's not going to disappear. Right, 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 right. So, so Barker, right, this historian Barker, um, even though people are saying at the time, right, in the 1830s and the 1840s that the right. war in Texas had everything to do in slavery, Barker, for some reason, feels the need to refute that when writing his history book in 1911. Right. Right? Like, why? Uh, we're explaining to you why of all of these cultural things that are going on at the right. moment, right? Um, and also, Barker says that he can only find three instances of people talking about slavery. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous because the memoirs of Texan, Mexican, and American participants were littered with references to slavery and the fears that Texans had uh, that Mexico would completely curtail the use of black slaves in Texas. Right. That, mm-hmm. that That's throughout the memoirs. Right. That that was one of the fears that they had and is why they had to to fight for their quote-unquote freedom, right? He just wasn't looking very hard. <laughs> he didn't want well, to find it. you know, and, and I guess let's stop because we want to make clear that the people that are doing this, Barker, the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, the, the Daughters of the Confederacy, they're not doing this maliciously. They are, okay, well, maybe you're giving me a side <laughs> eye. I would argue they're they're... They are part of a culture where this is normal and acceptable. They believe and very strongly in this. Yes, yeah. that that the, um, the 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 white supremacy that allows them to be in the position that they are clouds their vision as to mm-hmm. some to some of the, the realities of what's going on in the world. Sure, I think that they were so steeped in white supremacy. White supremacy was so much a part of the society and culture that they themselves had built. That it was completely normal to them. Yeah. Um, but I do think, and and this is based on, this is not my field, but this is based on things that I've read. I do think that many of them knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Um, to an examples. Just... Oh, I, I'm just thinking of the myth of the black confederate, um, mm. which they, people. It's a myth, by the way. Which is a myth. <laughs> um, that people had to actively seek out examples of black men present in the confederate ranks um, as body servants, as cooks, whatever. And they had to actively change those stories. They had to actively rewrite them mm-hmm. to turn those men into soldiers, soldiers right. who wore gray uniforms, right? Like there is a, a very active element here um, in the creation of the lost cause that I think that we can say that for some people, this was just part of the culture. They walked through it. Um, but I, I don't want to give them too much of a pass yeah. there, too. No, no, that's fair enough. And and a historian like Barker should know better. Yeah. A, a trained historian. They didn't. And there's plenty of history where historians don't. Uh, right? right. But, you sh- but uh, yeah, I mean, as historians, we should hold him to a higher accountability. Yeah, screw him. He's, he's also <laughs> really super dead, so it doesn't... <laughs> His ancestors are going to come after you. Right. Going to get all them ats on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Here we go. So Barker, as a source himself, is then regurgitated over and over and over again in numerous history books, some even from the past decade. So this is really recent. Mm -hmm. He is cited as a source in the majority of books written about the Texas War of Independence when that book is arguing that the war had nothing to do with slavery. So I want to pause here and tell a story about how this works, um, even today. Yeah. Recently... 
this uh, meme was circulating around on Facebook, and it includes a quote from Robert E. Lee that says this, there's a terrible war coming, and these young men who have never seen war cannot wait for it to happen. But I tell you, I wish that I owned every slave in the South, for I would free them all to avoid this war. And it's paired with this Lincoln quote that's taken horrifically out of context. So a friend of mine, um, my actually my former global studies teacher, um, asked me, you know, is this accurate? Um, and I did a little bit of searching on it, and I and I found it kind of hard to find that actual quote. Which first, that should tell me right away if I can't find that quote attributed to Robert E. Lee in the many, 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 many books and biographies and what have you about Lee right away on a Google search. That's right. a red flag, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I searched around quite a bit and um, ended up finding it in an issue of Century Magazine mm. from 18, I want to say 1888. Um, this is, what, 18 years after Lee died? He died in 1870. Um, and it's a man talking about how before Lee died, he had interviewed him and mm-hmm. he's just now publishing this interview. <laughs> right. And he's yeah. got these really beautiful flowery things that Lee has said, which somehow he's had recorded just sitting around his house and just never thought to publish until now. Yeah. Well, that quote has been plucked out of this Century magazine and is the only other place where I could find it repeated was in textbooks. Oh, no. About the Civil War. Wow. Um, and it was specifically using, it was a textbook that was about um, using historical documents as texts, like to teach literacy. Oh, no. Yeah. And so no context, no context whatsoever. Yeah. Right. Um, and that is how this happens. Right. Yeah. People just pull things yeah. and they repeat them. They have no idea the context behind it. So this Barker interpretation is just regurgitated mm-hmm. and regurgitated it's like it's the dunning school right i mean that, yes that yes. the the dunning school the original interpretation of the war and and reconstruction we're getting into a little bit of historiography here but um basically upholds the lost cause upholds the lost yeah. cause and that those theories are just regurgitated in textbooks and that's how it becomes the quote-unquote truth yeah right yeah I mean, and again, uh, the, he is cited in a book that is written within the last 10 years that right. I just picked up recently. Right. This author has written 25 other books. He's a history professor. Mm-hmm. He's won a Pulitzer Prize. Right. So. Yeah. This is how this should happen. This is how it happens. Yeah. So, you know, what we're getting at here is that the master historical narrative on whether Texas independence and statehood had anything to do with slavery was written by a historian that clearly is subscribing to the lost cause, right? These two things become intertwined in historical memory. Right. Um, And I I think I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, slavery is not discussed in most schools when when discussing the Texas War of Independence, um, unless one just really has an exceptional teacher. Uh, For me, I did not. I mean, I had great teachers, but like, right, right. I mean, because, you know, they don't have PhDs in this stuff. They don't have masters. You know, they read the textbook and they assume, hey, this is real. You know, this is this whatever. 
Um, so, you know, slavery was just never mentioned in this war, not once. Um, it was a war for freedom, a war to break free of the despotism of Mexico. And, um, quite frankly, the Mexicans were painted as evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, never mind that contemporaneously John Quincy Adams and others, particularly abolitionists, um, were saying that Americans were pushing slavery in Texas and that if the U.S. intervened, the U.S. would be on the wrong side. Right. I mean, Adams said to members of the House in 1836, your war, sir, is to be a war of the races, the Anglo-Saxon American pitted against the Moorish Spanish Mexican American, a war between the northern and southern halves of North America, the Passamaquoddy to Panama. Are you prepared for such a war? Aggression, conquest, and the reestablishment of slavery where it has been abolished? In that war, sir, the banners of freedom will be the banners of Mexico, and your banners, I blush to speak the word, will be the banners of slavery. Oh, JQA is the best. That's some verbiage right there, man. So once Texas claimed its independence in 1836, slavery was officially and firm firmly protected in the state. Uh, and when they wrote the Constitution for their new republic, Remember, one of those signers being my ancestor, Claiborne West. Mm -hmm. um, they, quote, removed all doubt and uneasiness among the citizens of Texas in regard to the tenure by which they held dominion over their slaves, end quote. That is uh, attributed to one of the later uh, Texas Supreme Court justices. And once Mexico was out of the way, the slave population in Texas went from 5,000 in 1836 to 182,566 in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War. That was 30% of Texas's population. So it was clear that once free of Mexican rule, Texans and American emigrants into Texas increased the slave population by like a thousand percent. I mean, I don't know. I don't know math, but <laughs> it, that seems like What's, a lot of percents. Yeah, a percent, uh, percent increase from 5,000 to almost 200,000. I don't know. Yeah, that's a lot. Many percentages. Many percentages. Um, now, okay, we're not arguing that slavery was the only reason that the Texas War of Independence was fought. What we are saying is that it was a major factor and a larger factor than most Texans and most Americans in general ever realized or were taught in school. And the argument is, the argument that we're making, that that is purposeful. That is because the shadow of the lost cause also casts a shadow over the Texas War of Independence. But this makes sense because this is how America likes to remember its great wars, its victories. It's the same way that the Civil War is remembered, or at least was. We see that, I think, right now changing slowly. But there are still people who are fully educated within the lost cause. And I am one of them. It took me going to graduate school in a northern city to have my eyes opened to the fallacy of my primary and undergraduate education. I mean, I would love to say that I would have discovered these things on my own, right, without going mm -hmm. to graduate school, um, reading books. But, you know, who knows? Maybe not. I, I mean, at the same time, I mean, these things die really hard. I mean, take, for example, a popular children's book series called the Dear America series. They're kind of like American Girl books. Mm -hmm. um, I actually never read them. Um, but I know that they are super, super popular, yeah, and I've like read about them. Books. Yeah, yeah, I've read. Yeah. A, I know for, um, I know for a lot of historians, growing up with these books helped them kind of become historians. Mm -hmm. So um, they all have a central protagonist that's writing in a fictional diary during a major American history event. Mm -hmm. And so let me just read to you the back of this one book. 
In the journal she receives for her 12th birthday in 1835, Lucinda Lawrence describes the hardships her family and other residents of the Texas colonies endure when they decide to face the Mexicans in a fight for their freedom. So, I mean, that seems fairly innocuous on its surface, right? But if you break it down, if you kind of read between the lines, what this is saying is that Mexicans are bad, that the Texans were fighting for freedom, and that there wasn't a black person to be found, right? Slavery doesn't enter in. Right. And honestly, seriously, that's how I was taught about this war, that Mexicans were super evil. And I even went to a majority uh, Hispanic school. Right. You know, um, and it was still taught that way. But but things are changing and there are there is a growing movement to um, to to make a more inclusive history. Right. Um, there's an activist in San Antonio, Rolando Castro. Uh, he has this great quote, uh, quote, to reconceptualize the Alamo as a place for celebrating the confluences of cultures, Native American, African, Mexican and Anglo, rather than a shrine to Anglo dominance. And remember, you, mm-hmm. you, you told us that the DRT, you know. The Alamo is called the shrine. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and, you know, he the, the mythologizing of Anglo heroes and, and the disparaging of, of Mexicans and the erasure of mm-hmm. uh, black and African people in general, it, you know, needs to stop. It's, yeah. And, and so, I mean, to be clear here. Uh, During the war, the Mexican army committed some serious travesties under the directions of Santa Ana. They killed almost every single person at the Alamo, and they executed almost 400 Texan soldiers during the Goliad massacre. So, I mean, we're not trying to excuse anything, but those atrocities also happened during a time of war and what the Mexican army considered acts of treason or piracy. Right. So if we're talking about war, we are talking about people dying, right? We are talking about war atrocities. We're talking about, you know, all of the things that come with war and the violence that come with war. Um, but also, um, hopefully what we've conveyed today is that ramifications of war have so many different effects, not just the physical, right? The mm-hmm. historical memory right. of war also has to come into play. Right. And I just... You know, I think that there are so many parallels between this episode and the episode that Avril and I did on guerrilla warfare mm-hmm. um, and the difficulties that we sometimes have trying to create a comfortable historical narrative about our past, right? That in this case, we have Texans trying to kind of elide this very complicated history that in Involves multiple nations, people of all sorts of backgrounds and races and ethnicities, um, trying to kind of simplify it down and then fit it into the lost cause Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, in this interesting way. And in much the same way, I think that people had to try to fit the really difficult history of guerrilla warfare. They had to sort of sanitize it and, and deify people and kind of change the way they talked about the real kind of atrocities that some of these people committed in order to make that history fit into the lost cause as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just goes to kind of remind us that um, there's, there's the history of what happened. And then there's this super complicated history of how we remember the history Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that is just intensely complicated. And we're, we're always learning more about it. Yeah, so, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but 
context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, context, 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 context. You can't just look at a primary document and take yeah. what it is at face value. Right. You, it, it, there's so many multiple sides that you have to take into consideration. And you can't just take one historian's interpretation right. yeah. of the narrative and say, okay, well, this is the be-all, end-all. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. I, you know, I, I agree with all of this. and I, But it, what concerns me um, is something that a lot of Civil War historians have brought up recently. Um, in fact, several of the ones that I mentioned in um, the episode that Averill and I did on guerrillas um, have written about how, yes, we all, all historians agree about this like we all agree that we need to have context we need to read multiple sources and but the problem there is saying this to the public who they don't have time to to read through the historiography on the lost cause you know Mm -hmm. so how are they going to get that how are they going to um get that context that they need and i think one answer is conveniently podcasts but i also think um this is where public history comes in right public history comes in and um textbook education systems that are adopting textbook and textbook writers yeah i mean look at the influence that just a textbook that's used just for like the ap yeah Mm -hmm. has because that's what millions yeah of students in the united states take the ap exam the ap um the a push exam as they say is that what it's called now? A push? I always say that's. Um, I didn't know what A push was. Okay. I mean, I took it back in the day when it was AP. So <laughs> I didn't never take it. Uh, so all right. Well, so if you guys would want to learn more about some of the events events that we're uh, speaking about here, mm-hmm. um, as well as the construction of historical memory, um, and just kind of some nuts and bolts of of, of some of this stuff, uh, we we do have a very extensive list of. Um, books that you can pick up and read and mm-hmm. internet sources and things like that listed on our blog in the show notes and for the re- reading section, you can go to digpodcast.org and see all of the, the sources and things that we're referencing here. Yeah. And I, I also want to say too, just to kind of build off of that and build off of what I said before about um, how do we disseminate this to the public is we're here for you, right? I mean, we do this podcast for you listeners. And so if you listen to us and you have questions or you don't understand something about this whole complicated, messy process, shoot us an email or, you know, dare I say, at us yeah. on Twitter or, or on Facebook. And we, I mean, we're all nerds about this and we'd love to talk more. Yeah. Um, Our email address is... Oh, yeah. Uh, hello at digpodcast.org. Yeah. So we would love to hear from you. Yeah. Follow us on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest at dig underscore history. Uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Please, please do that. And also revate us. Revate us. Review and rate us. (laughs) Revate us. On iTunes. If you use iTunes, we would be so deeply grateful. All righty. Goodbye. Bye. I thought you were trying to get my attention. Bitch, wake up. I'm sorry, I was looking at these tarot cards. (laughs) Claim that. um, Claim that membership into the... You're throwing me off! (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Okay. I would love... Sins were writing for fur fee, fur fee, fur fee, fur.